when we first put the idea of a question series together, it, it was almost a given that this question we're going to deal with today was going to come up somewhere along the line. It always does. Any time you talk about questions people have about Christian faith, uh, this one tops the list most of the time. Why does a good God allow evil and suffering? And it usually is the primary objection that people have to the Christian faith as well. How could a good God allow this to happen? How do you reconcile the idea of an evil, broken, messed up, screwed up world with some idea of a loving, good, sovereign God? It's an accusation a lot of people lobby at Christians and I think a lot of Christians are very scared of that issue because we don't really know if there is an answer or if there is a good answer for it. It's a question that's been around a long, long, long time. It's not a new question at all, but it's being asked today, I think with some fresh urgency and in new ways. Uh, if you look at the last half of the 20th century, there was a lot of talk about evil, a lot of talk about suffering in the world, but it was generally quite theoretical. It was generally, evil was talked about as, as this kind of, it was a speculation, it was something out there somewhere, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, and it was something that philosophers and academics and theologians dealt with and wrote about and published books on. But it wasn't close to home. And the one event, really, that changed all of that more than any other was September 11. And it's no understatement, no overstatement to say that event changed the nature of the conversation about evil and suffering in the world permanently. Because all of a sudden, even though there had been atrocities before that, even though the 20th century was full of evil and violence and bloodshed, what, what seems to have happened after 2001 is that there has been renewed interest, a fresh, a whole wave of discussion about what evil is, and it's no longer being talked about just as this problem out there somewhere. But now it's like evil has, has come home. Evil is close to home. Suffering is real. And I think part of it is the way that now mass media projects images, uh, projects sound bites, that you can see, you can visualize, you are transported to the areas, in a sense, where disasters and tragedies have happened, and we experience these things close up. So you see over and over and over again the pictures of 9-11 happening and the aftermath of all that being played. We are bombarded with them. You see evil and suffering on the faces of people in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, people dying on the side of state highways in New Orleans. You see this close up in the China earthquakes or the Indonesian tsunami or the Victoria bushfires. All of these images, we are bombarded with them to the point that sometimes you almost get fatigue from seeing so much of this stuff, but it's all there and it's all real. And people are talking about evil now, suffering, tragedy, not just as a metaphysical problem that needs a theory to explain it. People are asking questions like, how do I make sense of this in my world? How do I understand myself in this kind of world? What does this mean for me? What do we do about the problem of evil? Evil's being talked about more. That word, E-V-I-L, I mean, it's got far more currency today than it did in previous generations. After September 11, you have George Bush and Tony Blair talking about the war on evil, defining certain countries as evil. Tony Blair said that our ambition should be nothing less than ridding the world of evil. And so that word is used in political discourse a lot more than it used to be. In the media, people are branded. You have uh, Josef Fritzl, the Austrian, accused of horrible crimes against family members and others 
and, and his face plastered on newspapers with the headline, The Face of Evil. That word is, is, is used for people like that and others. Uh, even in the judiciary, you have just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Bernard Madoff. And in the, in the sentencing, the judge described his crimes as extraordinary evil. You hear that word more and more, and it raises a lot of questions about what is evil, who gets to decide who's evil and who's good, who gets to set those parameters, and how do we know that we're on one side and not the other? Who controls the agenda? But all of this means that evil's being talked about, suffering's being talked about in new ways, but the old question's still the same. Why could a good God, how could a good God allow this to happen? And what does a Christian response to all this look like? Can there even be a Christian response? Because Christians, on the one hand, want to talk about God being good and God being loving and, and sovereign and all-powerful. And yet, on the other hand, we can't escape the reality that this world is messed up and there is tragedy and crisis and heartache and brokenness everywhere you look. And we're trying to hold these two things together and it's not easy. And one of the things... I think we've got to be careful of doing, those of us who are Christians, is we've got to be careful of trying to, try, try, trying to formulate some easy answer to the problem of evil. And, and you see this happening sometimes. It's almost like Christians are a bit too eager to try and just put a little answer together, try a little slogan or, a, or, a, or a, some textbook answer that just deals with evil, that just explains it away. And usually what happens when Christians try and do that is they end up either belittling evil or they end up belittling God. Either they end up saying, well, evil's not really that big a deal. It's got a place. It has a reason. Uh, you know, it's, it's legitimate. Or they end up saying, well, God's really not able to do that much about it. Um, his hands are kind of tied. He's sort of restricted. His options are limited, so don't give him too much of a hard time. And neither of those options is going to cut it. Neither of those options is, is faithful to the biblical story. And if you came today hoping for the easy answer and tick the box and give me one or two sentences that I can fire at somebody that raises this question, you're not going to get it. I don't have it. And I've done some more reading and research and preparation for this topic, and I'm not even sure I've got much more clarity. I don't feel like I stand here with a lot of light to shed on this topic. But part of what I've realized is I don't think it's our role as followers of Jesus to try and offer an explanation for evil. Because interestingly, the Bible doesn't do that. Um, frustratingly, at times, the closest you get is Job, who, who goes through enormous tragedy and puts up his hand and makes a few accusations of God, and he gets frustratingly little in the way of an answer to his questions, really, honestly. I mean, you can cut it whatever way you like, but God doesn't really go into a lot of details about what evil is and where it came from. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us a lot to go on. And so I think we just need to be wary of trying to come up with a trite little answer that somehow just explains it away. Um, the problems in our world don't need easy explanations. They need deep wrestling and reflection. Auschwitz doesn't need an explanation. It doesn't need a trite little solution. It needs deep reflection on the problem and the gravity and the weight of human evil and suffering in the world. And so maybe a place to start then is in the, in the spirit of what philosophers, theologians call the new problem of evil, which is basically evil in the 21st century, the way that we're thinking about it and talking about it today. Um, to start with that question, the question that you heard reflected in that 
video clip from the West Wing, the question, how, what kind of plan could this possibly be? And this is the question you hear rise from the lips of people that are right in the middle of the storm when they ask, how could God allow this? How could God allow this to happen? And usually when we ask that question, uh, we have in our heads a way that we think God should have acted. A way that we think He should have solved this problem. And usually it's by intervening in that situation. So when we ask, how could God have allowed this to happen? Why didn't He stop this? What we're implying is, why didn't He prevent the drunk driver from driving? Why didn't He prevent the suicide bomber from carrying out his intentions? Why didn't he prevent the father from abusing his child? Why didn't God step in? Why didn't God do this? And to be fair, God could have done that. Some people want to say, well, you know, sorry, God's just not able to do that. I I don't think that's the case. The Bible does describe God as being completely sovereign, able to step in. If he wanted to prevent all of these things, he could, there's no question. But he doesn't. And so we're left with that question of why not? But let's just think for a minute of what that would mean if God followed our solution and God prevented evil and stepped in and made sure that no harm came to anybody ever. What God would be doing in those situations is he would be constantly overriding the choices that people make. He would be overriding the decision of the drunk to drive, overriding the choice of the father to abuse, overriding uh, weather patterns, overriding... the the decision of someone about to carry out a a, a suicide bombing, he would be constantly and significantly curbing the freedom, limiting the autonomy, uh, limiting the options. In a sense, what God would be doing is putting us all in a moral straitjacket. Okay, now again, he could do this, and this is often what the solution is in our minds, that God should be just wrapping us all up in this moral straitjacket so we can't act out. We can't do evil. We can't harm one another, or nature can't harm us. And to be fair, and to be consistent, you can't just argue this for the big things. You can't just say, well, God should just do that for, you know, murder, rape, incest, these kinds of things. No, no, that wouldn't deal with the problem of evil. You would have to be consistent and say, anytime anyone anywhere sought to harm or hurt or injure another person, God would have to step in and limit that. You could put a moral straitjacket on a pee addict, but as soon as you take that off, it doesn't, it doesn't solve his addiction. And as soon as he's released and able to, he will relapse. The solution that we come up with in our minds, it's a bit like if you have a pot that's bubbling over, boiling over, the solution we kind of want God to pursue is to jam the lid on the pot as tightly as he can, to stop it bubbling over and, and just hold it down in a sense. That's what we're saying when we say, how could God allow this? Why doesn't he step in? Why doesn't he stop it? What we're saying is, why doesn't he jam the lid on that pot But you have to step back from that and ask, is that really the best solution? Is that really the best solution to the problem of evil? And the story that the Bible tells is of another solution, a different solution. It might not be yours, it might not be mine, but it is a different solution. It's not the solution of jamming the lid on the pot. It's the solution of turning down the heat. That's how you stop a pot from bubbling over. That's how you deal with the root problem. And this is the story that the scriptures tell of what God is doing about evil. And what you find in the first 11 chapters of the Bible is a description of what evil and suffering really is. And we see that humanity is placed in the context of this matrix of relationships that we're created 
in relationship with God, with self, with others, with the world. And all these relationships are working perfectly, they're humming, they're, they're in sync with one another, that we have perfect relationship with God, we are whole and healthy people in our minds, relationship with ourself is good, uh, we're relating perfectly with other people, and we're looking after God's good creation and acting with goodwill toward the world. This is the story of how humanity starts. This is the first chapters of the book of Genesis. But what happens early on in the story is that humanity, humans decide to use their own autonomy to sever that relationship between them and God. And they do this because God has given them the freedom to do it. And here is where another objection pops up. People say, well, there's the problem then. God gave them the freedom, and He never should have. What He should have done is made it impossible for any of us ever to act in harmful ways towards one another. And again, God could have created that kind of world. God could have created those kinds of human beings. But this, I think, comes back to the nature of who God is as a relational being. That God desired relationship with us. And relationship requires the ability to choose relationship, to choose love, to choose community, which leaves open the alternative that some people may not. So God invested us with a relative degree of freedom to be able to choose relationship with Him or choose to do damage and harm to that relationship. Now let me say this, some people point to this idea of freedom or free will as if it's the explanation to everything, as if that somehow explains the, the origin of evil. Well, it's just human freedom, human free will. There you go. That's the problem right there. I, I, I've got to be honest with you, and this, this doesn't help my argument, I'll be honest, but I, I, don't think hum, I don't think free will is the answer to the problem of evil. I don't think it explains evil. I don't think it provides a nice, tidy, well, if we can just point to human free will. That's where it all came from. Think about it this way. My wife's a primary school teacher. Now imagine for a minute that she leaves the class for five minutes and says to the kids, now I want you all to do some sustained silent reading while I'm out of the classroom. No talking, no hijinks, on task, everybody, okay? She leaves for five minutes, she comes back, the classroom's in chaos, okay? Kids are running around, they're throwing things at each other, no one's reading, it's just absolute chaos. Now, what do you attribute that to? You can't look at that situation and say, well, the problem is they had free will. I mean, they did use their free will to misbehave. They did use their free will to act up, but that's not the cause of the problem. It's not simply the fact they had free will is the issue. If you're going to find the source of the problem, you have to look deeper in each of them and why they would want to misbehave, why they would choose to use that free will for evil, why they would be inclined towards misbehaving in the first place. What freedom does is it enables evil to flourish. Free will is a condition within which evil can take place, within which we can act in harmful ways or in good ways, but it's not the origin of evil. And ultimately, the sharp end of the origin of evil itself is something deep within the human heart, that we even have the potential to act like that. And that's something that I don't think any of us understand. It's not something the Bible gives us a lot of clarity on, but somehow we have this proclivity. We have this potential to act in harmful ways. And why that's even there in the first place, I don't think any of us really know. But it is, and our freedom that God gave us enables us to pursue that, to act in ways that are good or ways that are bad. And this is the story of how 
the origins of humanity started, that we're given this freedom, but we use this freedom to sever the relationship between us and God. And in doing so, we really disrupt and contaminate all of these other relationships. We contaminate the relationship with self, so people's minds become darkened and their hearts become hardened. We contaminate relationships with each other, and this is the story of the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Relational breakdown between families, between uh, societies, between cultures, on and on it goes. It ripples out, ripples out. And eventually, relational breakdown between us and the world. Even the physical cosmos, in some way, is affected by our decision to act against God's created intent. Somehow, when we chose to do that, it didn't just affect your individual relationship with God, it affected your relationship even with the natural world around you. That everything in that moment was thrown out of kilter. Everything was affected. Everything came unstuck. And now those relationships exist in disarray. Now that's the state that we're in. But what you find is that as soon as you get to the 12th chapter of the Bible, for the entire rest of the story, the burden of the Bible is taken up with God's solution to that problem. And this is really what marks the Christian story off from other stories that people tell to explain life and explain the problem of evil. The Bible doesn't spend that much time trying to give an explanation for evil. It spends time telling us how God is dealing with evil, how God is solving evil, what He is doing to overcome it and put it to an end. And this is so different from the major worldviews that people carry around with them today. The worldview of modernism, which was the dominant worldview of the 20th century, this myth of progress that through scientific achievement, through human reasoning and rational capacity, we're going to improve the world. We're going to gain mastery over the world around us. We're going to usher in the perfect human society because we are able to do it. And then as the 20th century drags on, two world wars, and Rwanda, and into the 21st century, Darfur, and 9-11, all of these things, the myth of modernism just crumbles. It can't be sustained because it, it doesn't have a place for evil. All it says is that society is getting better, that we're on this upward trajectory, but it cannot accommodate the problem of evil that is so rampant and so visible in the world. And so it's being replaced now with post-modernity, and post-modernity has no problem talking about evil. No problem diagnosing evil is all around us. I'm evil, you're evil, we're all in this mess. The problem with postmodernism is it can't, get it can't get us out of it. It has no solution. That's why it breeds a generation, my generation, of cynics and pessimists. This is what postmodernism is giving us. Graduates coming out of philosophy departments, out of literature departments and universities who have utterly no hope about life. They can talk all day about the problem of evil and deconstruct evil in the world, but there is no way out of it. It's just the way it is. It's just you and it's me and we're fallible and we're fallen. And it's in contrast to those worldviews that you have the biblical story, which from the earliest point is preoccupied with God acting and God dealing and God working. Evil is the problem in the scriptures that God is acting to overcome. And we could tell the whole story as it snakes its way through the Old Testament and the New, but for the sake of time, let's just focus on the climax to the story, which is the person of Jesus. This is God's decisive solution to the problem of evil. And what you find with Jesus is even before he dies, he goes around doing things that hint to you and I 
as to how he's going to deal with the issue of evil. When a storm comes that threatens the life of his disciples, he stills it. When a man's possessed by an evil spirit that turns him insane, he casts it out. As people are sick, he delivers them. And all the while, Jesus is giving us a foretaste of what it is that he has come to do and what his mission ultimately is going to be. Nothing less than ridding the world of evil and suffering. And, and, and the story rolls forward to the cross where that plan that God has put in action for centuries before finally comes to fruition. And it's really the cross that you have to land at to see what an appropriate Christian response to the problem of evil actually looks like. There's a couple of things that happened on the cross. And one of the problems, if you've, if you've been journeying with us through the Mark series, one of the things we've been trying to argue against is this narrow and small view of what the cross did that I think a lot of, even Christians, are still trapped in. This very closed view of the cross where it's just about delivering a spiritual part of you so that you can be reconnected personally with God, and that's as far as it goes. The cross casts its shadow over the entire cosmos and over all of history, past, present, and future. It affects everything. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. It affects everything. It is the moment in the story. And what happened on the cross is this. Paul describes it in Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He says, in the first place, what the cross has done is it has dealt with the evil that resides in us. Because this is primarily where evil and suffering reside. It's not this problem out there somewhere. This is often how we want to talk about it, like evil is really just, it's him, it's that, it's her, it's them. But the witness of the scriptures is that it's, it's me. The problem is me. And evil runs through every single human heart. This is why we're so quick to ask God to intervene and deal with evil and stop evil and intervene. What we're always assuming is that he needs to intervene in someone else's life, in someone else's story, to curb their freedom and limit their autonomy. But we don't want that for us. As far as our life goes most of the time, we, we want God to shove off. We don't want him to limit our options. We just want him to deal with the evil that's out there. But what the Bible reveals is that it's not out there. It's here. It's in us. It runs through every single human heart. And the cross dealt with that issue because it canceled the charges that stand against you before God. The guilt that we have as contributors to the problem, the culpability that you and I have because we've participated, like it or not, in bringing the world to the place that it is today. That guilt, that culpability, that blame, and those charges, the cross dealt with all of them because Jesus stood in our place. He absorbed it. He took it on himself. He canceled, Paul says, he canceled our legal indebtedness to God. And the charges that stood against us and condemned us, he took that on himself. He died for it. He paid the sentence so that you and I don't have to. But there is another aspect to the cross and another perspective from which to view this which is that the cross not only dealt with the evil in here, in my heart, in your heart, it dealt with the evil out there as well. Paul says that Jesus triumphed or conquered the powers of evil, the authorities of evil, and made a public spectacle of them. He disarmed 
the powers of evil. Because evil's not just an issue in here, but there are real forces at work. We'll talk about this in some subsequent, subsequent weeks when we deal with some of the other questions that came up. But this world really is in the bondage of one who stands against the plans and the purposes of God. And the Bible describes him as the Satan or the accuser or the devil. And he influences and he, he robs and he destroys and he steals and he seeks to tear down the work that God is seeking to create. And what Jesus has done on the cross is triumphed over all of that evil. Triumphed over every attempt. Because the cross represents the ultimate and final attempt on the part of evil to tear down the work of God. At the cross, every power of evil converges against the person of Jesus. All social and political and personal evil, it all comes together. And it seeks to destroy this person who stands to bring about a new world. But it's precisely in that event of evil's last great attempt that God acts to turn evil on its head and conquer it and triumph over it by the cross. That essentially what Jesus does is he absorbs the world's evil on himself. He absorbs the full weight of it and he exhausts it. He bears the full brunt of it until it's completely spent. And he dies with that weight on his shoulders, but God raises him to new life, triumphing over the powers of evil. So the cross has dealt with the problem of evil as it resides in our heart. And the cross has dealt with the problem of evil as it exists in the world, as it exists externally to us. And the result of all this, now on the other side of the cross, the result of all this is nothing less than making possible a world where evil no longer exists. That's what the cross has made possible. John Lennon asked us to imagine a world where there's no heaven. But the Bible invites us to imagine a world where there is no evil. And it takes a lot of imagination because we are so embedded in a world where there is so much evil and so much decay and so much depravity. I think this is what leads so many people to assume that if there's going to be a world without evil, it can't be this world. It must be some other purely spiritual, disembodied world. And this is where that notion of just being in heaven, floating on clouds, playing harps comes from. We just find it impossible to imagine that this world could actually be rid of evil. But that's the vision the Bible holds out for us. And the only reason we, we can't accept it is because our imaginations aren't big enough. Because we don't have a great enough vision of what it is the Bible sets before us. This world, but without any trace whatsoever of evil, personal, internal, or external. Imagine what that world would look like. No more woman's refuge, no more victim support, no more divorce lawyers, no more battered women's shelters. This is the kind of world the Bible envisages. It, it uses other imagery, of course, imagery that was rich in Jewish symbolism. But it's not a less physical world. It's not a less solid world. It's not a less real world. In fact, this new creation the cross brought about, it's more physical. It's more real. It's more solid. Even than this present earthly existence. It's this world, but transformed and renewed and resurrected without any trace of evil at all. No more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more death, no more pain. This is how the biblical story ends with that picture of that world. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to 
connectionresources.org.nz. 